Well, last week we began our study of Ephesians with an introduction to it, a kind of an, an overview of the whole book so that we would have some context in our minds as we go through it now in, in smaller segments. And so last week, remember, it is the Apostle Paul who is writing, so his words carry divine authority. His letter is a circulatory letter, meaning that it will be delivered to dozens of house churches in and around the area of Ephesus, and he's writing to saints who are faithful. He's writing this letter to believers to teach them and to encourage them and to exhort them to holy living. But the implications of its covenant promises of grace and peace, remember, even in the greeting, he says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are covenant promises of God. They're available to all who hear and will believe. So this this letter puts the gospel in play for all people, believers and unbelievers. This week, as we begin the body of the letter, beginning in verse 3, Paul calls us to praise. It's the very first thing that he does. That word blessed, in verse 3, we would read, let us bless or praise God. There should be praise to God. We've already begun that this morning. I hope you've noticed. I hope you've noticed that that's why you came into the room this morning. We've already sung praises. A second Adam walked the earth, whose blameless life would break the curse, whose death would set us free to live with him eternally. We've already sung stronger than darkness. That's That's a great admonition. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. God's mercy is strong. We've sung, I will not boast in anything. No gifts I have, no power I have, no wisdom I have, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. I will boast in his death and his resurrection. The the time of singing isn't just because we like music. It's because we've come to ascribe praise and blessing to God who has blessed us. We are called to praise God even as Paul praises God for what he has done. Verses 3 to 14 we've mentioned are one long sentence, 202 rambling on words. It's a beautiful, artistically written, smooth-flowing, glorious declaration of praise to God for His indescribable work on behalf of sinners like you and me. It is not a mere theological statement of truth, although it is that. Paul, as we read his words, is moved deeply in his soul. You can hear the apostle's heart sing as he writes because of what he's writing about. He's writing about the grace of God and the love of God for us. So let's pick up. I want to read beginning in verse 1 through verse 14 this morning. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. That word is about amazing grace in the splendor of the Trinity. Paul skillfully weaves together the roles of God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He weaves together love, grace, and the meaning of redemption. He weaves together the mystery of salvation, the sovereign plan of God, the power of God, and Christ's lordship over all spiritual powers. He weaves together all the themes that are going to be found in this letter in one sentence that displays the manifestation of God's glory and grace in his love for us. In order to make this dense passage manageable, I will focus on just verses 3 to 6 this morning, focusing on God the Father. Next Sunday, we'll focus on Christ the Son in verses 7 to 10. And the following Sunday, we'll look at the Holy Spirit in verses 11 to 14, beginning this morning, focusing on verses 3 to 6. If you'd follow along, you might want to use the the sermon outline and the worship bulletin that you have. It'll help you to follow along, and you'll find this theme, faithful saints are called to praise God the Father for his electing love to sinners who do not deserve it. His grace is glorious. His grace is glorious. And Paul begins with an exclamation to praise God. It's that word blessed. It means let us praise God. And he repeats it throughout this one sentence. Did you notice? He repeats it again in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. He repeats it again in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And he ends in verse 14 with, to the praise of his glory. I think we're supposed to be praising God for his glorious grace. That repetition makes it unmistakable that what we are reading will lead every believer and every believing church to praise God. Why? Why have we gathered here this Lord's Day morning to praise God? Because God the Father has blessed us. And he has blessed us, notice, in Christ. Key words, in Christ. Do not miss this. Every spiritual blessing with which God blesses us comes to us in Christ. 
couple of things we don't want to run by too quickly here. God the Father has blessed us sinners in Christ, so let's take just a minute to notice this Christ. Already, in verse 1, this Christ is the one who called Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles according to the will of God his Father, so that the gospel would go forth. Also in verse 1, to the saints whom Paul is writing are faithful to this same Christ. They've heard that gospel and responded by faith. In verse 2, Paul pronounces grace and peace on these believers, which is the covenant blessing of God. The covenant blessing of God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, we have peace with God in Christ. And here in verse 3, Paul clearly says that our God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that relationship. Don't let those words just blow by you because we see them so often in the Bible. Think about that relationship. God the Father has a close, intimate, father-son relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior who came to seek and to save lost sinners. I talk to people all the time who have one of two stories. One is that they grew up in a home and they had a great relationship with their father. But I hear just as often of children who grew up with not a great relationship with their father. God is the father of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And together they have the perfect loving relationship. The one that you and I want. And that, a perfect, loving relationship, is what God is giving us in Christ. Just a brief note about this Christ whom we know as our Savior. Paul calls him the Lord. Jesus Christ. He's pretty important as our Lord. Get a couple of nods there. He's your Lord. He's important. But he's even more important than just being Lord. If we we sneak a peek down to verse 10, which we read, we would see that the culmination of God's plan for the whole world will be a celebration of Jesus' Lordship. There's big things going on. When God brings the entire creation under Jesus' reign, as Lord. He's pretty impressive. But we're going to save that idea for next Sunday. Our focus now, and what we must absolutely understand, is that God has blessed us in His very own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how has God blessed us in Christ? Paul says He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That sounds like a pretty good blessing, doesn't it? Anybody at all like excited about that? Or, or at least warmed by the idea that you've, been, you've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? I mean, that sounds like a pretty good blessing. But what does Paul mean by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Well, the word spiritual clarifies the nature of the blessing. Paul is not talking about the significantly material blessings of God's people in the Old Covenant. 
fruitful lands, fruitful wombs, security as a nation, and honor among nations. Deuteronomy chapter 28. To be fair, those old covenant blessings of material abundance always pointed forward to greater spiritual realities. So the spiritual blessings that Paul says are ours in Christ come from God's promise of a new covenant in Christ. Like Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. And I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. The theologian Charles Hodge says that these blessings are spiritual not merely because they pertain to the soul, but because they are derived from the Spirit. So we know that God is the source of every blessing, and we know that every blessing comes to us because we're in Christ, and now we know also that the Holy Spirit is the agent by whom these blessings actually come to us. So he's present in our every spiritual blessing throughout the sentence and then specifically identified in verses 13 and 14 at the end, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the hope of your salvation, and believed in him, Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the nature of our every spiritual blessing is that they're spiritual. And the location of the spiritual blessing is in the heavenly places. Now the phrase, in the heavenly places, describes the location of our every spiritual blessing, but not in the way you would normally think. Most of us would probably think that means, well, we get them when we get to heaven. They're waiting for us there. But that's not really what Paul is describing, is it? Paul is emphasizing the blessings that are actually ours right now. Just look at the text. Isn't it clear that these blessings have already been given to us? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Past tense already happened. These blessings are real and they are now. And you may be thinking, okay, great. But what does it mean that I'm blessed in the heavenly places? What am I supposed to do with that? Well, Paul is not using this phrase to point to a particular location like like a certain spot in heaven where our blessings are sitting, but rather to a particular realm. They're in a heavenly realm. We are blessed in the spiritual realm in contrast to this physical realm. Brothers and sisters, you know that there is a world beyond this world that you cannot see, don't you? You know there is an unseen spiritual realm all around us. In it are rulers and powers and dominions. It is where Christ is. These blessings are from that realm. They're spiritual blessings. While the material realm, as we know it, will one day pass away, the spiritual realm will last forever. It's the realm that is more real, not less real. It's the realm that is more lasting, not less lasting. And so, our spiritual blessings are of better quality, of more lasting quality, and therefore, much to be desired. Let me give you one brief insight into their usefulness. In case you're wondering how this connection is made. In chapters 4 through 6, the second half of Paul's letter, Paul's going to call us to live in a manner worthy of our calling, here, now, in this life. And these 
spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are what make it possible for us to do that. The apostle Peter would say it this way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. That's why we're to bless God. We're to bless God who has blessed us with these blessings. Verse 3 is just the beginning of the sentence. It's just a heading under which all the rest of the sentence lands. It's, it's a summary statement for the rest of the sentence. Paul declares that we're to praise God because he has blessed us. Then, in verses 4 to 14, Paul lists the blessings. The reasons why God is worthy of our praise. And the key to understanding the whole sentence is that we faithful saints are in Christ. By faith, we sinners have a new identity in Christ. Our new, real, spiritual identity in Christ is our new reality by which we see what is true, by which we live. This new reality transforms us, transforms every aspect of our life and how we live it. Because it's in Christ. And here's the first blessing in verse 4. I'm just going to start in verse 3 because it's too good. Here's verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul says we should praise God because he chose us in Christ. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of election because elect and choose are proper translations of the same Greek word. It's important for us to see that Paul is presenting God's choosing, remember, as a reason for us to praise him. Paul's first reason for us to praise God the Father is because he chose us. Election, especially in our context, seems a bit of a cold word, doesn't it? Seems a little bit cold and remote for such a warm truth to be chosen. Think for a moment about being chosen. My mind immediately runs, runs back to Averill Elementary School in Lansing, Michigan, gym class, and dodgeball. Split up the boys, have them pick teams. And it made a huge difference to me whether I was chosen last or chosen second to last. That made that much difference. Think about what it means to be chosen. It's very warm, isn't it? The fact that God has chosen us compels us to praise him because it reveals his loving design to be gracious to save us though we are the ones who sinned against him 
God has always chosen people for his own reasons and for his own purposes. We see it throughout the Old Testament. God chose Abraham to be the father of his people. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. It's written in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. Why Abraham? I don't know. God chose Aaron to be the high priest to his people. God sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. Psalm 105, verse 26. Why Aaron? I don't know. God chose David to be the king of his people. God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Psalm 78, verse 70. Why David? I mean, this is important to understand. God chose Israel to be his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God did not choose Israel because they were deserving. They were the smallest of nations. They were a stubborn and a stiff-necked people. God did not do it because he foresaw that one day they would choose to follow him. They would not. Even after he chose them and was gracious to them, Israel still chose idolatry. No. God chose Israel for his own reasons. He chose Israel because it pleased him to do so. Our sovereign God is all-powerful, and he does as he pleases. If you want to define God to somebody who doesn't know him, start there. He is all-powerful, and he does as he pleases. Our God is also good, and his election of people is an expression of his grace and of his goodness his unmerited favor towards those who have actually sinned against him. When we read the Old Testament, we're completely comfortable to acknowledge that we do not understand why God chooses people who he chooses. They all failed him. We're entirely convinced that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're completely accepting of his choices for for his reasons and for his purposes. And God is the same in the New Testament. God chooses. Think about this. Think about this choice. The Bible tells us that God chose who would be his Messiah. He promised a Messiah, and then he chose who would fill the office of Messiah. Whoever fills that office is God's choice. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Luke chapter 9, verse 35. God chose his son, Jesus, to be the Messiah. Even Jesus did not elect himself to the office 
of Messiah. God chose him for that office. Which is awesome and totally makes sense. Listen. God chose to save sinners and then God chose to have Jesus save them. It's that simple. That's what we call a plan. That's what we call the plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what we call the will of God being enacted. And that's why we praise God for choosing us. When did this choosing take place? When did God in Christ choose us? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if we were playing a Bible trivia game this morning, and I had prizes to give away, I don't. But if we were playing a Bible trivia game this morning, and the question was, what was the first thing that God ever did Many of us would turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we would say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So your answer would be that the first thing God did was creation. Is that your final answer? No, I'd like to phone a friend. I'd like to phone my friend Paul. He says that even before creation, God did something. He decreed his elect. He chose those whom he would save before he created them, before he created anything, which emphasizes at least three important things. The first one you already know, but, but here's proof of it in scriptures, that Christ the Son of God preexisted with God the Father. They are eternal. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were with one another before creation in eternity past in a perfectly happy and loving and contented and glorious relationship. Remember, that's the kind of relationship he's, he's wanting to bring to us in his choosing. The second may be a little surprising. When God chose us in Christ, Christ was not only present, but participated with the Father in his choosing. He chose us in Christ. Jesus' Son was in complete agreement with the Father's choosing from before the beginning. And their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And thirdly, our salvation has nothing to do with us. Because God chose us before he created anything. The reason for God's choosing of us cannot have anything to do with us. Because we had not been created, there was nothing about us that merited his choice. There was no one to compare us to. And we had no opportunity to do anything to earn his favor. There was no one there for us to compete with. It is our human nature, however, isn't it? To find some reason in ourselves why God chose us. Come on, you know that's in your human nature. Must be something about me that he liked. What is it? I want to know. What is it about me that made God choose me? You see, God's choosing of us had nothing to do with us. Therefore, it must have everything to do with God. 
which is what Paul's trying to tell us. Because it had everything to do with God, you should praise God. He alone has the power to save. He alone has the authority to grant mercy. So we cannot boast. That's what we sang earlier this morning. There's nothing that we can boast in. And what would we boast in? Everything that we would hold up to commend ourselves to God is riddled through with filthy sin. Everything that we would hold up to say, look, I commend myself to you, would actually condemn us. God looks upon man and says, there is not one who seeks me. We deserve only God's wrath for our rebellion against him. Which is why God's choosing of us is such a wonderful spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, isn't it? A gracious and a loving thing. We have no protest to lodge against God. It's this simple. He chose us. And because he chose us, we praise him. So why did he choose us? What was his purpose in choosing us? God chose us for a purpose. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy means to be set apart. Set apart from this world, set apart to God. When God chose us, he set us apart for himself. And blameless means without blame, without sin. Pure, instead of defiled. God chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. That sounds wonderful. Especially when I look at my heart in the mirror and see how unholy and blamable I am. This isn't anything new. In the Old Testament, we see that God chose his people Israel to live lives of holiness. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus eleven sixteen. And the same purpose holds in the New Testament. There's continuity here. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy with all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Now you're thinking about this because being holy and blameless is a bit of a problem for us, isn't it? There's a bit of a problem here. We do not live holy lives completely set apart to God. We're not blameless living lives of perfect purity without stain of sin. Unless and until we call upon Christ. If you're not a believer in and you recognize that you cannot stand before a holy God because of your sin, humble yourself and call upon his name. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's God's promise. All who come to him, he will never cast out. You don't have to understand the mystery of God's choosing. You just need to hear the gospel and believe, and you will be saved, the Bible says. 
He will make you holy in Christ. Brothers and sisters who are in Christ, He has made us holy in Christ. He chose us that He should do so. And Paul tells us that it is those who are in Christ who are made holy by Christ and that they are made holy in a process of sanctification. Paul recognizes that we have been made holy. That is, we have been set apart for God in Christ. He also recognizes that we are being made holy. That is, that we are growing in holiness by our obedience to the Word and the work of His Spirit. And Paul recognizes that one day we will be holy. He writes about this later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the purpose of God's choosing. In Christ, we sinners become what we actually are not. Holy and blameless in the sight of God. This is the gift of God in Jesus Christ. God desires for us to be holy and blameless. We are not holy and blameless, and so God blesses us with the spiritual blessing of holiness and blamelessness in Christ. So bend the knee, bow the heart, submit to Christ and be found in Him and be holy and blameless before God. This is marvelous. This is glorious. And it's this too. This righteous standing that we have in God's sight begins to influence our righteous living right here in our daily lives. Consider Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Just listen, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. All of this flows out of God's election. All of this happens because God willed it so from before the foundation of the world. So the question is, Why would God do this? If it has nothing to do with us, what is it then that motivated God to do all of this? Love. Love. Pick up in verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
at the exact same time before creation that God chose us in Christ, he also predetermined to adopt us as his sons in Christ. We tend to see these two terms, election and predestination, as the same thing. And for the most part, they, they kind of are. They're decrees of God's sovereign will. But there's some slight nuance between them. To elect means to choose. For a specific reason, for a specific purpose. To predestinate means to decide beforehand. To predecide a particular outcome. So, in eternity past, God chose those who would be his people and at the same time made a separate decision to adopt his people as his children, to adopt us into his family as sons. A quick note. Why does, why does Paul and all the New Testament writers insist that all believers, both men and women, be adopted as sons? Why don't they write sons and daughters? It's not because we are sons and daughters, it's because of the process of adoption and the laws of adoption in Roman society. This is because a son adopted under Roman law gets everything a naturally born son would get. Not so for daughters. Under Roman law, daughters don't get anything. But sons are 100% identified with the family name. (laughs) You wear the family ring. Sons are 100% participatory in the family inheritance. And so the writers at this time, both men and women, are adopted into the same sonship, the same privileges, the same blessings, which is wonderful for ladies because the world was not that way. The sonship status comes to us through Christ, God's only begotten Son. And here's the amazing thing. Remember this. God loves his son Jesus. God loves his son Jesus. He loves him perfectly and everlastingly. And now, he loves us the same way. Everything about God's choosing us and making us holy and blameless like himself and adopting us as his children is covered in God's love for us. All of this is because he loved us first. Remember the intimacy of the father-son relationship between God and Christ? We truly become children of God With that closeness, that trust, that intimacy, with no fear of ever being betrayed or losing it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verse 15. The purpose of God's choosing has always been relational. The purpose is to bring us into relationship with Him. It was in love that God chose us. It was in love that God made us 
his children by adoption, and his perfect love casts out all of our fears in that relationship, that's the love of God. That's what Paul's writing about. We need to hear and reflect upon God's electing love and his adopting love. Our eternity rests in the hands of the one true God who has chosen us to be his children. Not based on our shortcomings, not based on our failures, but based on his gracious love for us. All the reasons why we should praise God are also reasons for the great confidence that we should have in our salvation. Because it's all of God. We have this great confidence that our Father will keep us and He will bless us in Christ. And just when we're tempted to think this passage is all about us and our blessings in Christ, Paul turns our attention back to God, our Father. Beyond us being the beneficiaries of his great love for us by his grace in his Son, what is the ultimate outcome of God's blessing of us? It's in this passage. Paul gives us this cascade of three phrases to reveal to us the purpose and resolve of God in Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. They just cascade out in those three phrases. According to the purpose of His will. According to His good pleasure. That would be a translation of that. God's will, God's pleasure. Who can break God's will? Nobody. His will is the basis for our election, and our predestination. He is the sovereign and powerful God who wills, and it is done. He has willed to choose us in love. He has willed to adopt us as sons into his family in love. And he will clean us up and make us holy and blameless in Christ because he loves us. The reality of his grace and love towards us leads us to see his glory. When you see grace and love like that, don't you say, that's a glorious God? Yes. To the praise of his glorious grace. All of this grace, the favor of God. He determines his disposition towards us. I will favor you. All of this grace, the favor of a holy God to sinners who have rebelled against him, who've gone against his will, who've shaken their fist at him, who've said, I know better, who've chosen our ways, we've wandered astray, chosen our ways, instead of following his gracious ways that would be good for us. It's led us into all kinds of sin and pain, like we're in a pit and need to be pulled out. And he pulls us out in Christ. The only proper response to the incredible favor and love of God is for his people to praise him and to magnify his glory in Christ. How do you do that? Well, well, look up towards the ceiling and say, God, you're glorious. God, you're amazing in your grace towards us. Ascribe glory to him. Say things that are true about him because everything true about him is glorious. 
In all of this, he has blessed us in the beloved. And your Bible should have a capital B. It's referring to a particular person. It's Christ. It's the Son. It's the Son whom God loves. And we are in Christ. We are now, by faith, the children of God. We are in the beloved, the one whom God loves. And so we too are God's beloved sons and daughters. At Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God spoke saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God is well pleased in Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 16, verse 5, God spoke saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God is well pleased with Jesus. Here's the connection. All who are united to Christ by faith are united with the beloved. All whom God has chosen and adopted as his sons in Christ are also beloved of God. Paul's purpose in telling his church these things is that we would praise God. That our response would be praise towards his glorious grace, which he's given to us in the beloved. Let me close by just reading again, verses three to six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the very word of God to encourage his saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We humble our hearts before you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have been gracious to us sinners. Lord, we thank you that all of the blessings in the heavenly realms are ours because you have given them to us we are merely the recipients of these glorious blessings, and so we thank you. Father, we thank you that by grace you chose us, and in love you adopted us into your family. And that by the truth of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, you're making us holy and blameless, that we might stand before you that the truth of our status now, that we are holy and blameless before you, would become reality when we are holy and blameless before you. And so, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your glorious grace, which comes to us in Christ. And so we praise you for Christ. 
This is our prayer. We offer it in Christ's name. Amen.